0: yeah so you can actually design a road um that's you know that's designed in such a way that 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 the water will be able to infiltrate into into the road um, which is incredible and it's you know it's 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 really a way to prevent flooding and I think you're right you know you say we're all going to be living in um, urban environments I live in london it's very urban um and another advantage of green infrastructure is really this idea of reintroducing greenery. Which obviously has a purpose. It has a function. The function is to, um, to prevent flooding and to, and to, to make us more climate resilient. But it also, it, inc- it improves the quality of life, right? I mean, you know, in, in my street, we don't have a lot of trees. Maybe it'd be nicer if we had more trees, if we had more greenery. Um, if I had a, a park that was closer, that would maybe, I don't know that it's functioning as a, as a stormwater buffer, but actually for me, it's just a park where I can go and, you know, ride my bike. Welcome to The Urbanista, where we discuss the water management challenges of Nordic cities. From safe drinking water distribution and stormwater collection to building sustainable urban living environments, here is your host, Delphine Vesalo.
1: Hey, welcome back, urbanistas. It's so nice to have you back. And thank you so much for pressing that, that play button. Thank you for listening to us and listening to all the topics that we have to share with you. This effort that we are trying to do is to communicate. Communicate and share all the problems, challenges, um, and all the topics that we have around the water. And certainly, sometimes this communication amongst all the people in our industry is not the best that we will wish, really. Uh, But that's why we are here, so trying to open up and having this conversation with different people with different um, sectors, actors within our industry, and communicating about the challenges, particularly in sustainability, the challenges that the water companies or the water actors have in front of them, is the specialty of our guests today, communicating those things. So who are you and what do you do? <laughs>
0: Uh, Thanks so much. Uh, Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, So my name is Talula Lutkin. I am Utility Performance Editor at Global Water Intelligence. Um, So Global Water Intelligence, or GWI, um, we're a media company, but we're actually a lot more than that. Um, I think that we would define ourselves as the leading source of information, uh, data, and opinion about the water industry um, and about the global water industry. So about what's happening across the world. Um, And me i am utility performance editor, so I just spend my days uh talking to utilities and sort of hearing about their challenges about their their successes as well and and their innovations and all the all the great stuff that they're doing to uh you know to become more climate resilient to to and to enable uh their services to continue in a world that just keeps changing and and keeps becoming more challenging for them uh so yeah so i'm i'm here to yeah, communicate about about utilities and and talk about all the great stuff that that they're doing.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Talula. Actually, because you already mentioned part of what global water intelligence does. Uh, that's how we, we got in contact first, uh, because you have a lot of information. I mean, up to date or to date, yeah, uh, information, news about the water industry at large globally, but also you do research. Is that, is that correct? Yes. Yes. By we yourself, do a lot of research in colla- collaboration with different academic or how how the research path a piece goes?
0: Yeah, so the research is you know it's very very much the core of what we do um, and our research base is the water industry itself right so it's the utilities it's also the suppliers it's the uh, people who invest in the water industry Um, and we have basically a a global network of all these people who um, you know that we are able to reach out to that we have these great relations with and and so yeah so our source of information is the water industry itself and and we reach out to the people who are actually in the field on the ground um, who are part of the industry and who and who give us the great information And, and so we collect all these pieces of puzzles from different places from different locations and all these stories and we turn it into the global picture of, of the water industry
1: all right that sounds uh, actually we will, we will go into into more details and and also we can we can put uh, some link to uh, GWI Absolutely. website um, in the show notes and all these things about sustainability the so-called green infrastructure but starting what how do we define what green infrastructure is and the what is this, its role on on helping the cities to become more resilient or climate change resilient, should we say?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think green infrastructure is uh, it's a series of things. It's it's a, if you know it's a, a big package of lots of different things. Um, to define it, I'd say it's it's a way to integrate environmental features and nature basically um, into. Uh, in a designed way to be able to uh, become more climate resilient, right? So to um, manage stormwater flows, to prevent flooding. Um, But I think, I mean, I know all about water, but maybe green infrastructure has other applications as well uh, outside of water. But very much in the water industry, it's using those environmental features and just you know, what nature already knows how to do, which is actually absorb water to manage those stormwater flows that maybe concrete is just not good enough uh, to do it nowadays. Um, so yeah, green infrastructure can include a set of things. It's a whole matrix. So it can be very simple. It can be just soil. Um, So if you plant a tree, you've got some soil and that's just kind of absorbed the water. Or it can be very engineered. So things like permeable pavement. So that's very engineered product. Um, Bioswales. So that's also very engineered with different layers of soils and capturing still water. Um, It can be very, small, it can be a small rain garden on the top of a roof in New York, or it can be massive, it can be redesigning a whole marshland, you know, in Louisiana, maybe. Um, And it can also be urban, again, it can be very sort of engineered into an ultra urban environment, or it can be coastal, it can be far off um, in rural areas. So it's really a whole matrix of, of different things that can be done. But every time it's really finding ways to not use concrete and not use big tunnels not use um big engineered um things that need to sort of be installed and, and and take up a lot of space but it's really integrating nature integrating green so that's where the green comes from
1: comes from well, yeah, because into we, what things do we humans or actually the way in which nature was designed of course the rainwater falls, and there's the absor- absorption call it infiltration, the, I mean, the natural process of the cycle of the water that, of course, goes down and goes down the rivers or, or ends up in some water recipient. And then we humans came into place and built this thing called cities, which, of course, we cover everything with pavement or, or, or tarmac. We put all this concrete over, like interfering, really, with the natural process. And But those cities are, well, they are already there. Not that we can get rid of the cities where we live, right? I was reading some stats that, well, uh, very soon, by 2030, almost 60, 65% of the world population will be living in, in these massive conglomerates of concrete. We already have them. We need to, what do we need to do? We need to re, um, uh, rebuilding. We need to add new green infrastructure. You mentioned something, actually, I didn't know this this permeable how is it permeable concrete
0: permeable pavements yeah that's right so Pave- uh, yeah so you can actually design a road um that's you know that's designed in such a way that 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 the water will be able to infiltrate into into the road um which is incredible and it's you know it's 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 really a way to prevent flooding and i think you're right you know you say we're all going to be living in 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 um urban environments i live in london it's very urban um and another advantage of green infrastructure is really this idea of reintroducing greenery which obviously has a purpose. It has a function. The function is to, um, to prevent flooding and to, and to, to make us more climate resilient. But it also, it, inc- it improves the quality of life, right? I mean, you know, in, in my street, we don't have a lot of trees. Maybe it'd be nicer if we had more trees, if we had more greenery. Um, if I had a, a park that was closer, that would maybe, I don't know that it's functioning as a, as a stormwater buffer, but actually for me, it's just a park where I can go and, you know ride my bike but it also functions as something so that's really that double function as well of of, of green infrastructure to, to you know to help us be climate resilient but also improve that urban quality of life that we all kind of want um, when we live in cities
1: yeah actually now that you are mentioning that uh, a couple of couple of weeks or a couple of episodes ago we had uh, uh, an urban designer baby Rabio, who actually he she's a uh, award-winning because of the design that she has brought this urban mobiliary, which is a bench made of renewable materials, wood amongst other things, the greenery or or the part where goes some small tree, and of course the rain garden under. So it it contributes to the aesthetics of the place, the square or wherever they place them. And it has a a functional purpose, of course, absorbing the the stormwater and the nurturing with that same water that same bush or tree or whatever was there so it it stays there uh of course if there's some excess water it goes down and well to the normal to normal drain but that is the yeah that's the way we have seen many municipalities or or cities are approaching this reusing the water like circ applying circular economy um, principles to mm-hmm. reusing stormwater or harvesting, should we say? Harvesting stormwater to use it for other purposes. So have you seen, have you reported any of these cases?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so yeah, I just wanted to come back to what you're saying because it's so interesting when we talk about going from grey to green, that it's, we use it as a metaphor, but actually it's very visual. You literally go from a grey urban environment or a grey basketball court to a green, something that's absorbing and looks green as well. So, uh, so yeah, and, uh, and like, like you say, um, stormwater isn't just a nuisance, it's also a resource. Um, there are lots of areas that are um, very water scarce. And I think that something that's really important to remember is that when we talk about climate resilience, we tend to talk, okay, so we talk about not enough water, or we talk about too much water. Um, but actually, and those aren't necessarily two separate places. Right. So I think there are areas, uh, particularly in the US, California and Texas, where they have a lot of water scarcity. There are times when they have droughts, but there are also times when they have extreme flooding and extreme uh, water events. And so in the same in the same location. Um, and so that's why it's really important to harness that stormwater and to yeah, to be able to collect it. Uh, it needs to be treated, of course, because, um, you know, when rain falls, uh, it goes across the road. It, picks up a load of dirt, um, it, needs, it, needs to be, it needs to be treated. Um, and, uh, and after that, it can then be used uh, uh, in a myriad of different ways, right? So it uh, depends where you are, it depends what you need, but it can be used for irrigation, it can be used for industries, um, and it can also be used for... Um, uh, indirect reuse, right? So maybe you have an aquifer and, uh, sometimes it goes up and down and you can ha- harness that, um, stormwater to, uh, recharge your aquifer and that, that will then help, um, your drinking water, uh, resource as well. So, um, so, and I think that what's really interesting about the water industry is that, um, it's all, Water is very local and the solutions that you're going to need are probably going to be quite local. It might be the case that you have a lot of agriculture and so it makes sense to reuse it for irrigation. It might be the case that you have groundwater and so it makes sense to reuse it for aquifer recharge. Um, so it really depends on where you are. But at the same time, the solutions are global. Right. So uh, it's the case in, for example, um, groundwater recharge is, a, is a, it's an issue in Australia. It's something that they do. But California, they're very much of that. Um, they have that. Uh, possibility of doing that as well. So, you know, what we try to do at Global Water Intelligence is to also connect those people, right? So we're going to go talk to some Australian utilities, talk to some California utilities, bring them together in a room and try and get them sort of talking about what they've been doing and, and maybe lessons learned and, 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 and talk about the challenges and the solutions um, so that as a water industry, we're not reinventing the wheel. Because Because we perceive water as being so local, we don't think that we have anything to learn from someone on the other side of the world. But that's not true. Uh, there's very much global solutions. And I think that's why this podcast is so really important. Talk about those solutions from across the world and bring them together.
1: So the problems are pretty much common across the globe, actually, we could say. Absolutely. As, as you said, in some places, there's too few water. In some places, there's like too much. I mean, both things are equally bad. But we all are, are facing this, this, this same, these same problems. So. How do you say the water sector at, at large is approaching this sustainability or more specifically the carbon neutrality goals that okay the European Union has its own course for for <clears throat> 2050 um I'm, I'm not sure if there's similar initiatives in, in America or in, in in Australia but how do you see all these water the water sector at large trying to adapt trying to assimilate or how, how do we how do we process all these? Uh, carbon zero or net zero, net zero requirements question. that we are asking now?
0: Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. I think that um, I would like to be able to say that there is a global movement in water towards net zero. Um, I think that the reality is it's still quite regional, but I think that regional in in a sort of quite a broad sense, right? So you mentioned the European Union. Um, uh, in, in the US, there isn't a sort of federal mandate, but there are associations um, uh, who are, you know, getting utilities together to try and uh, get them to to talk about um, uh, net zero. So there was a collaboration actually between American utilities and Danish utilities to try and, um, you know, get them to how do how do you set a net zero target? How do you do that as a water industry? Um, Australia is quite um, advanced. So there's in uh, the state of Victoria in Australia, they have a statement of obligation to for water utilities to uh, to to have a uh net zero goal. Um so it is still regional. Um and again this is something at Global Water Intelligence. We're trying to encourage this conversation to become more global. Um, and conferences like uh, COP are actually quite a good um mm-hmm. catalyst to uh to improving uh this sort of global uh question of net zero because you know even though So climate adaptation, as we were talking about before, stormwater management, that can be sometimes quite a local solution. But carbon is very, very much global. You know, carbon that I produce today here is affecting the whole globe. So it's really something that needs to be a global conversation. Um, There needs to be more global governance. There needs to be yeah, more more discussions between utilities, but between governments on this, um, because we know that water is 80 percent of adaptation, but it's also 2 percent of carbon emissions, water and wastewater infrastructure is 2% of carbon emissions. That's as much as the aviation industry. So when we talk about, you know, planes, water and wastewater, pretty much the same in terms of carbon emissions. So there really needs to be a conversation globally about achieving net zero specifically at a a water and wastewater level um, to to really help mitigate the impacts that we're already seeing.
1: Actually, yeah, because now now that you mentioned that, I was not aware that you said 2% because of the contribution of the carbon footprint, because it's kind of pretty clear, or is more there's more conversation about the aviation industry and of course those big planes and turbines and mm-hmm. and, and, and spitting a lot of uh, uh, fuel all over the world, literally over over our heads. Um, but the water the water sector that has not that actually may seem a bit new that we are equally pollu- not not pollutant, but we collaborate with the same amount roughly, than the aviation industry in terms of carbon emissions.
0: Yeah, that is absolutely true. And that's actually one of our uh, recent research projects at GWI was to... um, try and estimate the global uh, emissions of the water industry. And so you can actually go check out our white paper on that, um, uh, on the global uh, emissions of the water industry. We break it down between water, wastewater and sanitation as well. So um, uh, on-site sanitation systems uh, that are used a lot in the developing world, so not connected to a sewer, things like septic tanks, latrines, um, they produce a lot of methane. Um, Wastewater treatment also produces a lot of methane, uh, um, which is 25, times more potent as a greenhouse gas than co2 um, we all know that the, you know water is pumping water around it's very very energy intensive it uses up a lot of energy that's a big part of it as well um, and uh, yeah it's 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 like you say it's something that we' we all talk about planes um, but we don't talk about the water industry and and i think that To be fair to water, water and wastewater treatment is a lot more important to us as a society, maybe than, than air travel. Um, I think that, Mm. you know, obviously we need to keep treating wastewater. We need to keep having safe, um, uh, drinking water, but there's a lot that we can do to mitigate those emissions. Um, there are so many solutions out there and there's so many utilities who are already, um, taking action, who are already Doing all they can to reduce those emissions. So, um, so yeah, and I think that it needs to be a global conversation, and we need to be aware of be aware of it and be aware of the solutions as well to mitigate those emissions.
1: We'll we'll make sure uh, our producer Maria that um, puts a link on the show notes or in our our, in our main uh, blog entry a link to that to that research because that will be really interesting to deep dive into those numbers. Particularly, actually, you made now the point of of wastewater. Yes, both the the wastewater treatment that goes through the public network so how what is the what is the situation there and also the wastewater treatment that is outside of the public network mostly yeah more suburban or rural areas if you want because some people we, we have been talking to yeah well that is the problem of the water utility hey yes but if you have a second house a summer cottage i don't know out of in the wilderness somewhere in the middle of nowhere clearly you don't have connection to the to the wastewater system at uh, the municipal wastewater system but then you have to install yourself a wastewater treatment plant there in your property big small or whatever or septic tank whatever is the uh, with some biological process inside so the the same you are also collaborating not to pollute with your own of course wastewater and that is That is something super important. Okay, in the Nordics is widely regulated, but I don't think that is that regulated in in other countries, like the the off-the-network wastewater treatment.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that you're quite right, and especially, I mean, you know, I'm I'm getting married this summer, and the place I'm getting married is far off. Oh, congratulations! In the Roy, Thank you.
1: Hey, <laughs> okay, now we have here uh, uh, some news. Okay, fine.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, but yeah, but the place I'm getting married is far off in the countryside, and it has a septic tank, and uh, you know, and and it's something that maybe most people wouldn't think twice about. But for me, I was like, oh, okay, so. You know, what are the emissions of the septic tank and what are the emissions for the truck that needs to come and, you know, collect the is from the septic tank? And I think that, yeah, it, it definitely in France here, here where, where, where where I'll be getting married, it's not really regulated. I think that it's, you know, um, and people don't really see it as their problem. And people think about contamin- maybe environmental contamination, but as in terms of, of, of pollution um, of the water, but they don't maybe don't think about the carbon emissions of all that methane just sitting there building up in that tank um, and then in in places you know in, in Africa in Asia Latin America where um, on-site sanitation so these systems are what most people in urban environments rely on then the, the, obviously the issue is completely multiplied uh, so so yeah that's really something that's overlooked that we don't have a lot of data on in our research we very much say that we think that we underestimated the impact of, of these um, uh, you know off-site uh, out of connection, off the grid um, mm-hmm. systems, because uh, yeah, because there's just not enough data uh, to tell what the impact is. So that's another so area that we, we need more research. That... We need people to go out there and measure the emissions of their septic tanks.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is very difficult to collect that information because if they are not part of the of the water network properly, of the urban exactly. or suburban area, if they are somewhere in the middle of nowhere, well, first let's find them, and then actually that is that is quite quite a challenge. Talk about not the suburban aspect, but more like inside of the urban areas, uh, all these water utilities that are at the forefront, you you mentioned already a couple of examples in, in Australia, uh, uh, in the U.S. as well. Uh, what these water utilities that are at the forefront, what they are doing right, what they are doing differently that, that we should be aware of, maybe follow what they are doing?
0: Yeah, I think that, I mean, I could give you some examples of some really cool, you know, Tech, technology that people are doing. I mean, you know, you, you can have a look at uh, Yara Valley in Australia. So they're a great utility and they're really looking into the potential of of uh, hydrogen production. So co-producing uh, hydrogen uh, and wastewater treatment. So using the water that comes from wastewater treatment to use as a, bi- uh, as a primary product for hydrogen production. And so there's a you know, that's a really cool innovation that these guys are looking at. Um, and, you know, there are sort of some great utilities in Denmark as well. I'm, I'm a great admirer of VCS Denmark, and they have they're doing a lot thinking about nitrous oxide, which is another overlooked greenhouse gas um, in the water sector. It's, uh, I think, 100, no, 300 times more potent than CO2. So it's a really, really big issue. And they're at the mm. forefront of looking into that. Um, but I think that beyond the sort of, you know, the different techniques and the different technologies, I think that the the utilities that are, that are that are doing what the the best utilities are doing differently is thinking holistically about the issue, right? So it's not just focusing on, you know, improving my non-revenue water or not just focusing on improving my energy consumption from my treatment plant, but it's really thinking about the whole system. Thinking about, okay, so I've got methane building up in my sewers, but how can I treat that when it become comes to the, the treatment plant? Thinking about, you know, okay, so I've got some water conservation, um, but that water that I'm losing, that's energy that I'm also losing. Um, So it's really thinking about that holistic process, thinking about the trade-offs. So sometimes there are, you know, let's say, so actually nitrous oxide is is a good example in the sense that um, if you're trying to reduce your energy consumption from your biological treatment process, that's great. You're reducing your energy consumption, but that probably has the effect of increasing your nitrous oxide. So you actually, the energy that you're saving and the CO2 that you're saving from reducing your energy, you might actually be creating more greenhouse gas emissions from your nitrous oxide. So there's these trade-offs, like that kind of thing. Um, but there are also synergies, right? So it also ways where, you know, if you're saving water, you're also saving energy. So I think that the lesson, the best utilities, what they're doing is really thinking about the whole system, thinking holistically about um, how they're, you know, treating the wastewater and treating their water. Um, And that's really the best way to go about it. And beyond operations, thinking holistically as well about resources, about, you know, we talked earlier about stormwater management. So, you know, going back to that, thinking about, okay, so I've got this resource and how can I use it and how does that fit within the system that exists? Um, So, yeah, so I think that the answer to your question is really thinking holistically and thinking about synergies and trade-offs is is the best way to to solve both the climate um, mitigation and the climate resilience uh, issue
1: resources of i mean i mean talking about resources in terms of well money i mean budget because there may be many innovations and good things and 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 very forward-looking things but if if there's no money if there's no budget, and this is this is what we have seen, uh, the major cities or the mid-sized cities, they are always yeah, let's do something uh, innovative and, and 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 bring more, bring our collaboration and share with uh, others. But then what we have seen is that the smaller cities, the smaller municipalities, that they are just well, well, we have, we don't have that much budget. We are just looking what the big guys are doing, and let's see if we someday we can copy them or we can learn from them, because there's this. Constraint, very strong constraint about, well, the money, of course, is public money, what they use, and they should be mindful about, about it. Um, yeah, any any thoughts on that? I mean, because there's we have seen quite big disparity on the big cities with a lot of money and the mid-sized or smaller cities that are like, mm, just looking, trying to do their best.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, (laughs) um, Actually, at at Global Water Intelligence, uh, every year we publish our global water tariff survey. So it's something that I work on every year. um, And it's what we try to do is record the um, basically how much people pay. So what does, you know, what does a water bill look like in San Francisco? What does it look like in Berlin? What does it look like in I don't know, um, Bangalore. So all these different places. And we we collect data on water tariffs for over 500 cities across the world. Um, and so we can really get a global picture of um, how much water costs. Um And I think that, you know, some of the takeaways that we've had, so we've been doing it for over 10 years now. And so we've got some really good trends coming out of the 10 years. And I think that what we've seen is, first of all, that tariffs, water tariffs really don't they're just barely keeping in line with inflation, and that was the insight from last year. And since last year, obviously, as we know, inflation has gone up massively. And so I think that when we'll be looking at this year, um, uh, it'll 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 really be an issue that 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 water tariffs just aren't even keeping pace with inflation.
1: Are we? So that's are the we first paying issue. too little? Are we, we paying, are paying too little
0: for the water? Yes, we're paying much too little for water. Um, it's it's I think it's a big issue uh, globally. Um, obviously, like you say, there are huge disparities, right? So an average. Um, the average uh, water tariff in for about 15 um, uh, cubic meters in San Francisco is about one hundred fifty dollars in Athens. It's twenty dollars. So, you know, there's a huge disparity in how much people pay for water. Um, and maybe in San Francisco, they're probably getting it about right. But I think that most people listening to this would think that, a you know, a 150 or 200 dollar water bill a month would be excessive. But actually, that's what water costs. Water is ex- extremely um, capital-intensive. It requires a lot of infrastructure. As we know, it requires treatment plants, it requires pipes, it requires pumps. Um, it And people obviously want their water to be great quality. They want to be able to turn the tap, they want to be able to drink out the tap. Um, uh, and so it's it's vital, it's cost, cost, costly, um, and we do not pay enough for it. And I think that um, you know, there's this question of it being a public good, and it's very true. And you don't want to make water unaffordable because every, obviously everyone needs it. Um, but I think that what we've seen across the utilities that we talk to is that um, the ones that do a lot of community outreach and that explain these issues and that say, "Look, we know you you want your water to be good quality, and and we know it's important, um, but it's expensive." And explaining that to the community makes them understand the importance of water. So I think that the solution to that is really, yeah, this. To do more outreach, to to raise the profile of water to the to the ratepayers, to the community, that's the most important thing to do. Um, I think I heard someone in the at the Global Water Summit that we had a couple of weeks ago was comparing water operators to mushrooms because they're always in the dark and nobody sees them. Um, and I think that that's the case of water, right? People don't realise where where water comes f- comes from, why it's important, and and I think that. Yes, there's not enough money in water because people just aren't aware of it and aren't aware of how expensive it is, but also how important it is and, and the processes to, to get it to where it needs to be. So, so yeah, I would say that, yep, we need more money. That's that's very true. Um, and we need to explain why Conversely, it's
1: Conversely, that is, that is also a, a social aspect because we are, we, we are paying too little for the water, but in anyway, we want... Drinking water of quality. We want all the wastewater properly disposed, and so we don't have flooding, so we don't have any any uh, infectious disease in our cities. But I don't want to pay. Of course, I want all those things. But I mean, this is part actually one of the uh, was one of the big topics when we were last year in the International Water Association uh, World Congress in Copenhagen. So that was one of the one of the key things. So how much is uh, how how much is too much? How little is it? because then that may impact significantly the social aspect of of, of the community of the cities where, where we are, and uh, yeah it seems that yeah this conversation keeps keeps on going, and actually yeah now that you mentioned yes we are aware, we are recording this in um, um may 2023, but just a couple of weeks ago you have your summit um uh in Berlin, so what was what what which were the key takeaways? In your, in your mind, which was the boss and which was the key takeaways that all the global water leaders were discussing there.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. So we had a global water summit. That's right. In Berlin, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, as I said, as global water intelligence, what we do is try to get people together to have those conversations. And so the global water summit is really the catalyst for that. It's incredible. We have people who come from all across the world. We have utilities. We have, um, people who walk, work in water for industries as well, right? So, you know, who, who's the water sustainability director at Coca Cola, you know, these kinds of things. Obviously, the suppliers, the water technology people, um, so, yeah, so it's really a great event and it brings everyone together. And, and I and yeah. And so in terms of key takeaways, I think that it's kind of what we've been talking about. Obviously, climate is the biggest concern for everyone. Um Climate mitigation, yes, but especially climate uh, adaptation. Right. So making making cities resilient, making water utilities resilient. And then that finance aspect as well, like how do we pay for it? How do we get the money? How do we, I think that it's about catalyzing the money as well. It's right, right, sort of making the most of, of what's available. Um, and I think that the the key takeaway was really this, this idea of, of the global water industry. So we had um, uh, one of our keynote speakers was uh, Johan Rockström from the Potsdam Institute, and he's just published some new research, uh, which is fascinating about um, atmospheric uh, river flows. So this idea that, again, we, we talk about water as being local, but in fact, we have, his research shows that water flows across the world. So, you know, the, the way that you manage your water and your forests on one side of the world is going to have an impact on the rainfall patterns, you know, a continent away. And so it's really this idea of it being global and and that, and that because it's global, we need global governance and we need global awareness. Um, this idea that, yes, flooding is visible. Obviously, when Flooding happens. Everybody sees it, but what we don't see are the water utilities who are who are actually who are actually um, helping to prevent that flooding and, and then managing that flooding and treating the the water that, that 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 is a result of that flooding. So I think it's really raising the profile of water, raising the pro- profile of water as a global issue, um, is is was really one of the key takeaways. Um, uh, and yeah, and also the, you know again those synergies, right? The synergies between um, you know. Yes, we need to pay for it, but it's also an opportunity. There's a lot of investment opportunity in water. Um, water is obviously a growing sector because people, you know, we need to be more resilient and we're seeing these huge um, uh, packages coming out of the US, out of Europe to help uh, water utilities become more resilient. And there's, there are opportunities. There are opportunities for technology, opportunities for investment, opportunities for infrastructure. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it's, and I think that all that stems from making people aware of the importance of water and of the opportunities that are there as well. And that will just catalyze investments. Um, Well, that's the hope anyway.
1: It is incredibly surprising or not surprising, maybe, but it's it's fascinating how everything is connected and what you just were mentioning, what happens in one part of the world with the water can impact pretty much a continent away. All Mm -hmm. the people like, far 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 away from from what the origin the original uh, incident was or the original situation was it is all interconnected what is not interconnected because we have countries we have boundaries we have is the legal framework each one is okay doing trying to do their best on 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 legislating on or controlling or all these things but of course the legal framework is quite varied uh, across Across, across countries, was there anything uh, touching the legal frameworks in, uh, in in that in that summit? We are hearing particularly in the Nordics, in Sweden, the drinking water normative. Everybody's just talking about that, and what is going to be, which are the certifications that every single component that touches the water, of course, the drinking water needs to be compliant and certified, and ASO and, and ISO and Nordic Polymark and all these type of things. Was there anything? in terms of legal framework that we learned from the summit?
0: Yeah, so a lot of conversations about regulations. Um, I think that I was speaking to an Italian utility just a couple of days ago, and and they were saying, you know, we never get bored in the water industry because there's always a new regulation. There's always a new framework. There's always a new limit that we have to comply to, whether that be for water quality, um, you know, in terms of drinking water, or whether that be for uh, wastewater effluent. So he said, it's always there's always something uh, something to to comply with. Um, And I think that yeah, regulations are a huge driver in the water industry, you know, the, 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 these, these, that you know the european union or, or the or, or federal uh, decisions in the us are, are the kind of things that drive investment in the water industry because you need a new technology to remove a new pollutant or you need to or, or, or to comply with 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 drinking water um and i think that i think that those regulations are accelerating significantly um and and yeah and the, one of the big big conversations is obviously around uh, micropollutants and around pfas um mm-hmm. that's of Big conversation that's happening in the US. Um, and one of the things that we're hearing from the European utilities is, is they are saying this is going to be coming to us very soon. You know, stay tuned for a water utility near you. Um, this, you know, this PFAS uh, is, is going to be something that the European uh, Euro- European Union is probably going to want to regulate. Um, whether they'll go the same route as the United States is an open question because there's a lot of debate about um, the EPA in the US being way too uh, aggressive with their limits. And people, again, we're talking about affordability and about small utilities. Um, The United States has over 65,000 water utilities. So that's hugely fragmented. A lot of them are tiny, tiny, and they can barely afford to do their operations. And so they're saying, well, how are we going to afford to comply with these limits? And so there's this even these worries about these new PFAS limits bankrupting utilities in the US. Um, so obviously, we don't want that to happen in Europe. And so maybe the European Union will be able to learn the lessons of how the US is dealing with this. Um, but in the European Union, obviously, there are other conversations, right? So in the European Union, there's a lot more talk about microplastics, about pharmaceutical components, um, and again, sort of new regulations coming in to, to regulate those um, those those aspects. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a very big conversation. It, it goes back to the issue of money because the more regulations you have, the more you have to invest in better and and and, and, and more precise technologies to, to remove the, the whatever pollutants you need to remove. Um, uh, so, yeah, and I think that sort of quite a lot of frustration from utilities, but also it's been really it was really great hearing about. You know, again, this world community, right? So the the fact that European utilities are able to speak to American utilities and hear about their experience of dealing with these new regulations, and so that gives them a little bit of, um, you know, that enables them to be forewarned and and to sort of learn from the experience of their of their of their counterparts that have already gone through the process. Um, yeah, and yeah, again, this um, Italian utility that I was speaking to the other day. Um, they which, were
1: saying. Maybe we invite them to the show. I, <laughs> you I can invite know. them, yeah. <laughs> they
0: were great. Uh, it's from Milan. So, MMSPA, Spa, they're the utility that um, provides water to the region of Milan in, in northern Italy. Um,
1: oh, Milano. Okay, yeah. I, I live right. quite many years in Milano. Oh, okay, well, hello. Yeah, no, okay, they're
0: great. <laughs> yeah, they, and they're doing a lot of stuff on circular economy. Uh, they're very impressive utility. Right. We, we inaugurated them as a leading utility of the world at the Global Water Summit. So, leading utilities of the world is an organization that we created for utilities to really, the best utilities. Utilities, the most innovative utilities to come together. And so it's a network that we've created. And um, so Milan was one of the new uh, inaugurated utilities this, this year. So I was kind of talking to them about all their innovations and, and they uh, and they found it really interesting when they came to the Global Water Summit to hear about what American utilities are able to do with biosolids. So we were talking about the circular economy earlier. One of the really great things that water utilities or wastewater utilities can do is um, recuperate um, uh, fertilizer uh, from sludge. So once you've treated your wastewater you can you can you can make fertilizer from that and in the us it's something that that they're very much able to do right so um dc water for example so washington dc they have an actual fertilizer product that they sell uh you know as a product so they're, they've they become a fertilizer producer um and and the italian utilities were like oh i wish we could do that it would be great um but it's very much more regulated in, in italy and there's sort of they're not really able to they wouldn't be able to create a market for it like um like, like they can in the U.S., but then that's something that they can then take back to their legislators and take back to their regulators. And say, look, they're doing this great circular economy thing in, in D.C. We want to do the same thing. How can we change regulations? And so then, obviously, it goes through a process, European Union, etc. But but yeah, it's really interesting to see those those conversations happening and realizing that we can, that the utilities can maybe, you know, be a catalyst of change for regulations rather than being a passive receiver of 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 regulations and having to just uh, you know react to the regulations, that maybe they can be at the forefront of it as well. So yeah,
1: because one one interesting if you want crossroad is this regulation from one side, and all the sustainability requirements that now uh, the, the the water utilities or the water sector at large are trying to, to to comply with, and in terms of the procurement or or the tendering process, whatever. So. We have seen already several um, initiatives or several utilities that they are taking on their own because they are are conscious, they are are trying to do it on on their own to raise the weight in the normal public tendering. You know, there's different criteria, product availability, uh, price, of course. And one item that we have seen growing is the sustainability aspect. Prove me that you have or show me that your company, you, you, in our case, industrial manufacturer, uh, how sustainable you are in producing the materials that I will use for for my my project, the product itself, the carbon footprint of the product itself that they are putting, which type of materials are they using, plastic, concrete, uh, steel? Um, of course, there are different types of footprint that those uh, each one of those materials have. Um, have you seen anything? What what are the the what utilities doing of thinking in this purchasing criteria this tendering criteria applying there the sustainability
0: yeah that's a really good question it's something i've been really interested in right because for me like we were saying about these net zero targets earlier for me if you can't integrate the carbon footprint into your procurement process then you're never going to achieve net zero because everything that you that's the procurement process is the basis for everything that you build and everything that utilities have, right? Um, and so uh, what we're seeing from utilities is uh, exactly what you said, right? So that they're very much taking the initiative on their own. The The frustration comes from a lack of standards. There's a lack of, you know, way of accounting. Each supplier kind of does their own sort of accounting process. Um, each utility has their own sort of secret source for trying to do the carbon, integrate carbon into procurement. There's no sort of standard, global standard f- for doing this. Um, and but, but the good thing is that utilities aren't waiting around for there to be a global standard, because I think that if they waited around, then it would never happen. So the utilities are just taking their own initiative. And I think that the utilities and the suppliers are kind of figuring it out. But the more that they do that, the more that these processes are going to come uh, to fruition. Um, and a really good example that I'd like to talk about is uh, uh, so the utility in Auckland, New Zealand, called Watercare. Um, they have a uh, in, integrated into their sustainability strategy um, is something that they call the 40 20 And so uh, that means that they've got to build a. Uh, make sure I, I, took a note of this earlier, so I sure didn't, I didn't, I didn't, 20, 20, <laughs> uh-huh. 20, 20 yeah, so it's, um, they need to reduce their infrastructure carbon by 40%, so making sure that the projects that they do, they reduce the carbon impact of that by 40%, um, increase health and safety standards by 20%, so making sure that them when they build, the health and, state, health and safety is improved, and reducing cost by 20%. Right, um, so that's kind of their 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 framework for when they do new procurement. Um, and what's really interesting about Watercare is that they have very much taken the position that the first thing that they ask is, do we need to build at all? Right. So, you know, let's say we, we OK, we need to we need to, to achieve this outcome. Do we need to build anything at all? Because the best way to reduce your carbon emissions from infrastructure is to not build the infrastructure. Um, and so and, and obviously that's kind of quite a radical position. I don't think many utilities are taking that um, that that position. And obviously, you know, it also kind of puts them in conflict in conflict with their suppliers, because if they say, well, actually, we don't need to buy anything from you. Well, that doesn't create a great relationship, um, but they're really working on that. So what they're tr- doing is working with the suppliers to to, you know, to to understand that strategy, understand that it's actually in everyone's uh, interest to do that. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of I think that's probably the gold standard in terms of. Um, uh, integrating carbon footprint into procurement it's quite radical but uh but yeah they're making it work and uh, and uh yeah so are, so that's are a great they considering,
1: example sorry, are they considering this this carbon footprint reduction from the point of view of starting the project purchasing whatever they need to uh, to buy so is that the only one, the only how to say it in time when the time of the purchase and starting the project and building whatever we need to build either building new or renovating uh is that what the the limit that they are putting or the total life cycle of the that given infrastructure so what is the in the next 50 100 years i don't know okay this is we we are not going to be here for sure but what is the total carbon footprint on of that project in the span of Fifty, hundred years—are they also considering that?
0: Yes, that's very much their approach. So, uh, and I think that's really interesting as well. And when we talk about um, the procurement process and how to procure and how to take into account the carbon footprint when you procure, right, is that probably the life cycle is actually more important. Usually, than just at the point of purchase, right? So, as you were saying, obviously, you've got to consider um, how you know the manufacturing footprint of your suppliers, right? So, like, if you if you produce a pump, what is it made of? How you know how uh, how did you? What's the carbon footprint of, of making that pump? But then, once the pump is in the ground, what's going to be the lifecycle um, carbon footprint of that pump? And and I think that. Being able to take both of those into account, well, it's something that Watercare does and I think it's something that the best utilities are also doing, is really finding that balance between um, what's the life cycle cost and, and you know, does the, life, does the life cycle cost reduction offset the carbon footprint of manufacturing or not? Um, and it also comes into this question of replacing as well, right? So does it make sense to replace, uh, you know, to buy a new pump that's a lot more efficient or should I just keep my old pump um, and then Uh, make sure that that ensures that there's no manufacturing footprint from a new pump. Um, And I think that that's something that is it's really, really the sort of Almost the nub of of the question, right? It's how do you balance between the manufacturing footprint and the uh, life cycle footprint? Um, And it's again, lack of standard, the lack of data makes it really hard to figure that out. Um, You know, not maybe if your supplier doesn't know what the carbon life cycle cost is. Well, how how can how can you figure it? How can you figure it out? Um, So so it's very much. I think we're at the stage where. Everyone, both the utilities need to force their suppliers to, you know, to have this data, and the suppliers themselves need to start figuring out what those what those footprints are. Um, so it's a collaborative process, um, but but it's one that's it's really the next the next big thing in net zero. You know, a couple of years ago we were talking about okay, how do I make a net zero roadmap? How do I how do I even map out those emissions? And now it's how do I make that happen in reality? How do pragmatically how do I do that? And that is really through the procurement
1: process? What we have seen actually is, uh, as we discussed, the water utilities on their own, they are asking for environmental product declarations of the product. Mm-hmm. Right? Perfect. So we provide them by the, the product that we are we are delivering, whether the product is actually made of renewable materials, which is some something that, that we also produce. Okay. Here you got, here you got the product, the uh, EPD that goes um, along that, but certainly they are, they are third party verified documents, but as you said, sometimes there are different types of criteria. Wasn't that the, the EU taxonomy? Wasn't supposed to solve that?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I guess yeah, it was. Yeah, but what? <laughs> or
1: it's,
0: we that's are always, not there. it's always more complicated. I think it's the thing. I think that it feels very much like we're in uncharted territory with all these things. Um, you know, that there's always another, I know there's another. always another criteria, always another metric that you need to complement that data. Um, and I think that the most important thing is to move fast and to, yes, we, we do, we can rely on things that exist, like you say, like the European techn- taxonomy, but we need that legislation and we need those standards to accelerate um, because otherwise we're just not we're just not gonna make it and uh yeah <laughs> it's a difficult process so if, but we, can,
1: if we can uh, summarize this conversation because I'm'm I'm, I'm, t- I'm taking a few things we need to move fast you mentioned the holistic approach that the, the, the utilities need need to take the legal framework well sooner or later they need they need to catch up because if if the actors in the industry are moving. Fast or faster than what the legislation is moving, and particularly in Europe, well, yeah, it takes time. It just takes time to, to to issue a new a new regulation. So, speed, holistic view, keep an eye on the legislation. What what else can we can we get what will be your your, your to round of this, this topic, this conversation? Yeah,
0: I think something that was sort of always in the discussion is this question of awareness, right? It's that I, you know, when I tell people about my job, they look at me blank. They don't understand what's a water utility. <laughs> um, and I, I think that. That's that would be my my really important um, uh, takeaway from all of this is that we're not going to achieve any of this if there isn't the political awareness, the the awareness in the public in the public's mind of, 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 of these issues of what water infrastructure is, of how important it is, how cool it is. I mean, you know, when you think about all this great stuff people are doing, right? They're they're using your your waste, the, the stuff that you flush down the toilet. They're making renewable energy out of it. I mean, how cool is that? You say from you Italy,
1: okay, from the US, yes.
0: Yeah, it's great, and there's always all these great innovations, um, and and I think that, that that yeah, this question of raising the public profile, raising the political profile of water is is absolutely it's it's the key to unlocking everything. It's the key to unlocking investments, and it's the key to unlocking legislation. Um, and I think that it is starting to happen. I mean, there's a lot of outcry in the UK uh, uh, where I live about um, sewage discharge, and people are kind of un- understanding. Um, you know, what, what, what it is and suddenly. OK, who's in charge here? What's what's going on? Um And actually, when we had our drought in the UK last year as well, there was a lot of talk about uh, leakages and about non-revenue water, something that mm. non-revenue water, which I talk about on a daily basis. And then suddenly people would say, did you know that the UK loses 20 percent of its water through leakages? And I was like, yes, yeah, so we have data on this. This is my job. Um <laughs> And so, yeah. And I think that that's these kind of conversations are absolutely vital. And it's really that that, that awareness aspect is is what's going to save water in my opinion
1: we will save water eventually we will save the water
0: water will save us i don't know maybe both
1: (laughs) well maybe both talula thank you so much for this super interesting conversation no thank you for being for being with us and i will kind of like twist your arm to commit you if within three or four months i don't know maybe yeah towards the end of the year we catch up again to see where we are, what are you seeing? What are the new researches that you are
0: that working on?
1: And yeah, because as you said, things are moving fast. We need to things move do
0: move fast, yeah, yeah.
1: And 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 provoke this conversation between the actors of our our industry. Thank you very much, Talola, for all your That's time. Great. It's my pleasure. Insight. Thank
0: you so much for inviting me to be on the podcast. It was really, really great. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, urbanistas. There you go. The, the water will save us. Should we save the water? Let's think about that. Thank you, Urbanistas, for joining us today and see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Urbanista podcast, a production of Upono Infra, the leader in sustainable infrastructure solutions. If you found it interesting, why don't you share it with your colleagues? We all together can move our industry forward.